So um, I'm going to read you some. I'll do the Voice of the Martyrs newsletter. It's kind of hard for me to read this time. It's very, uh, very touching and very tragic in a way. But uh, I'll read you first from the uh, Between Two Tigers book. These are testimonies of Vietnamese Christians. And uh, <clears throat> some of these testimonies go back as far as the 1970s. And we know that the war in Vietnam ended in, I think it was 75. And um, these, many of these people, their trouble started after the uh, Americans and, the, well, the Allied forces. It wasn't many besides a few French and some British and Americans. That's, that's who the UN depends on most of the time to do all the heavy lifting when there's trouble in the world. But it was supposed to be a United Nations endeavor and wound up really being very costly in lives and other things for the United States government. As you know, there was protest against that war. It was ended, and things kind of went back the way they were with the communists rising back to power again. So this one is a story about uh, this man. His, uh, his story is called Under Constant Threat, Walking with Christ. Before the communists came, 80% of the people had given their lives to Christ in Dong Khai province. After the communists took over my country in 1975, they called all the believers together to curse and mock them. They said to the believers, now you have to sign a paper to denounce your faith. They began to put a lot of pressure on these people. Fourteen years after the communist takeover, only four families living there were following Christ. The people in our village were not allowed to pray together at night. The communists still watched them. My wife and I live in a house <clears throat> with two rooms. We have two children, one pig, and one water buffalo. One night when my wife and I were sleeping, a voice woke me up telling me to open my Bible to Luke 10:27. I woke my wife and took the Bible from under my pillow. When I read the scripture, it came alive for me, and my wife and I began to pray about loving thy neighbor. After I became a Christian, a preacher named Hao An came where many believers left in our province. I knew his visit was the will of God. My family was encouraged and desired to go into ministry. We began reaching out to others and helped to revive that village to the Lord. At the beginning of 1995, almost 100 people gave their lives to Christ. There are only three families left who have not made the decision yet. He knows he said yet. <laughs> I usually go from down Dong Kai to another village on my bicycle. When my bike needs repairs, I borrow another one. Sometimes I ride up to 30 kilometers. My ministry <clears throat> is with the co-tribe of nearly 200,000 people. On most of my trips, I have no literature to take as we have very few Bibles. I love to minister to others because the Lord has done some wonderful things in my life. In 1989, there was a person who was offended with me. In our tribal culture, whenever someone hates another person, they offer a sacrifice to the spirit world. This person made a small coffin as if for a little boy and tried to call my spirit into it. He then buried the coffin and covered it with water. Sometime later, a man digging under the ground looking for gold found this coffin with an image of me. Someone had told me that if somebody sacrificed your life, you will die. 
Somebody had told me that if somebody sacrificed your life, you will die. Me, oh, okay, I know what you mean. Many people acknowledged that God protected me, and because of that, many came to Christ. This year, my brother died. The people of my village prayed, and he rose from the dead. Again, many came to Christ after this happened. There were three homes in my village where we worship. We do not have a church building. We have a Sunday service, especially when we are experiencing times of persecution. Usually I send word out about what time we will be meeting. Sometimes we meet at 6 o'clock in the morning. At times we are watched, so we have to meet around 3 o'clock in the morning. If the believers live far away, they have to get up very early to walk from their home to worship the Lord. A little less than 100 come to my house. When we cannot fit everyone into the room, we attach a cloth tent to the outside of my house. From young to old, the people fill my house. We use three kerosene lamps to read, but those sitting farther away cannot see to read. We sing hymns that we know by heart. The police can hear us worshiping and singing. We cannot avoid this. After worship, we go home in the dark. Many people have accepted Christ. The police do not allow this. They call different families to the police station or courthouse and ask, who is this preacher? Who is this evangelist? Christians answer, we accept Christ because we want to escape the bondage. The first two or three times the police call them, they are a little afraid. But after so many times, they no longer fear. Many times the police would call me up to their station to force me to sign a paper denouncing my faith, but I refused to do it. They also came to my house. They continue to call me at the beginning of each year, even last month. My wife and I both understand our calling, so we each serve the Lord wholeheartedly. Sometimes I go away for months to evangelize, sometimes for just two or three days. The tribal people live either in in the jungle or in the mountains. They are separate from the Vietnamese people. There are 12 communities in my tribe. Nine of the 12 know Christ. The other three have not had anyone receive him. I am a rice farmer. I harvest 184 sacks of rice, which is a miraculous amount on my small plot of land. If my field needs to be plowed with the water buffalo, I plow for a week, then go evangelize another week. My wife and some of my family, my brother, sister, or father, also help so that I can evangelize. One day the police called me and asked, who gave you a license to preach? Who allows you to do this, to evangelize? I answered, this is God's calling. Then they asked me, what do you get out of this? I told them I received many blessings. Do you know my culture? Do you know my culture well enough? When tribal people accept Christ, we no longer have to offer sacrifices to idols. And the children shall lead them. My greatest desire is that the work of the Lord is expanded. I need Bibles and hymn books. I receive a few Bibles but still need more. There are 900 believers in the nearby area, but I have only six Bibles that are in Vietnamese. They have no other Christian literature, so we pass the Bibles around as I visit. Each family gets the Bible for two days, then they pass it to another family. Then they pass it on. They are very happy and have peace when it is their turn to have the Bible. The younger people read Vietnamese, so the tribal families have their children read the Bible to them. 
the whole family, seven to nine people, was sitting around a child on a straw mat on the floor. One time I saw a 20-year-old reading to his elders. The elders asked the younger ones, is this a Bible? The young people reply, yes, it is. The youth then describe a Bible character in the Bible. They read it to their father, grandfather, or mother. Every time the youth reads simple verses, all the adults understand, then, then they all pray and are filled with joy. A Christmas visit from the police. The authorities threaten me and others in the village that if, our, if we come together and believe in Christ, they will take our things and burn our houses. So the children hide our Bible very carefully. Last Christmas, I told everyone to come to my house for a time of worship. There are no official churches in the area, and there are 300 people in my village. We were going to celebrate the birth of Jesus. On December 23rd and 24th, uh, the Sunla District Police searched our house for any meat or cake, but they did not see any. They said they would stop us from celebrating if they found any. I told them <clears throat> that for over 20 years we had not celebrated Christmas. The police then told me to go to the official church, but we have none in our village. I said, I am not going anywhere. I want to celebrate Christmas at home. The police who came to my home on Christmas were from, from the tribal authorities and the Vietnamese police. They were in uniform, wearing their hats, standing in the doorway. More arrived in a Russian jeep wearing their pistols. The police found us eating together. Over 100 people were there. Some came from far away. We had cake, candies, meat, noodles, and fish. We had taken small offerings to buy food. Others brought food to put in a big bowl. We placed the food on a six-meter-long board on the straw mat floor and gathered around it. My house is so small that the believers took turns eating. Some would eat and leave. Police asked me to step outside the door. Surprise the police. Why are you celebrating today? I have responded, we are Christians and we are gathered together to celebrate. They said, you surely know how to organize things. What is the purpose of this religion? I said, it saves the soul. Saves souls? Yes. This is what happens. You don't have to sacrifice anything to idols. I invited <clears throat> the officers inside. They said, no, we do not want to eat, but do you have whiskey or wine? Since we had none, they left to go to a place where they could get a drink. Then they came back drunk. They brought secretaries to take notes. They tried to scold me and make things difficult. They asked me, why are you doing this? Why are you together here? I replied, the believers know today is Christmas, so they came. I did not gather them. So the authority said, we said you cannot gather and worship God, so you can now tell them to leave. I replied, I am not going to chase them out. They have done nothing wrong. I went into the house. Our celebration continued, and we bowed our heads to pray. Some of the believers asked the police, why don't you allow us to celebrate Christmas? The police began to walk back and forth in the house and outside, wanting to control us and make things difficult for us. And then again, they told the believers to leave. The believers said, no, we are not going to leave. I asked the police why they were trying to keep us from celebrating. They said, coming to God is not like coming to man. God is the spirit, and we worship. No, he said, I said, coming to God is not like coming to man. God is the spirit, and we worship him in spirit and in truth. Why don't you allow us to worship the Lord? 
Finally, I persuaded them to stay and observe the things that the Lord was doing in our group. I said, if you allow us to have our faith, then we trust you more. If you do not allow us to have our faith, we will not trust you. They just laughed and shook their heads. They stayed until the believers left in the evening. None of our new believers have been baptized. They have known the Lord for less than two years, and Lord willing, I would like to baptize them someday. I like the verse in 1 Timothy 2.4, quote, God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. <clears throat> Amen. So that's your between two tigers, how they're persecuted in Vietnam. And uh, that... I believe their their persecution has eased up some there. It looks like Korea has the highest, uh, is the most notorious uh, country in persecuting Christians. It's highest on the list. And uh, a lot of Asia uh, is definitely like that, except South Korea. Now, that's uh, South Korea has a, a lot of freedom there. But it's North Korea that's, uh, you know, not, not as free as they would like it to be. Uh, I understand Dr. Cho's church uh, has prays along the border between North and South Korea and praying that that wall division would come down and so that the gospel would come in. <coughs> Amen. This is a story about a woman uh, called Hannah Lee. This is the story of her, her persecution of her family in Afghanistan. Uh, it says, they counted the cost, they knew Christ was worthy, and they willingly put their lives on the line and paid the ultimate price. Hannah Lee had expected the Taliban's attack in Kabul that day. She and other doctors from her clinic had been put on standby at the U.N. meeting in case of attack. Nothing, however, had prepared her for the Tal Taliban's actual target. As Hannah Lee headed home through Kabul's traffic-choked streets on November 29th, 2014, her driver received a phone call. She could tell from his expression and the way he was talking that something was terribly wrong. Finally, he told her there had been an attack on the building where her family lived and worked. As they approached her street, police and armored vehicles blocked the way, forcing her to get out and walk the rest of the way to her, crowd, her house. A crowd had gathered outside the building, but no one would let her go inside or tell her what was going on. A terrible silence hung in the air, and nothing seemed to move. The usual city noises of traffic, horns, and barking dogs were strangely absent. As darkness approached, Hannah Lee noticed there were no lights on in their top-floor apartment. She worried and prayed while awaiting news of her family. At 5.45 p.m., the silence was shattered by the sound of gunfire, followed by a large explosion. Onlookers on the street scattered for cover. I believe that is when one of the street, the three attackers detonated himself in the hallway of the building, Hanley recalled. I started to cry. Concerned police escorted me away from the scene to a neighbor's house at the corner of the street, two houses from our own house. The sounds of gunfire and more explosions continued for the next hour. Eventually, Afghan police fired a rocket-propelled grenade at the top floor of the compound into the apartment where the grown walls lived. The house caught fire and burned until about 7.20 p.m. Hannah Lee sat in the dark and stared at the glow of her smartphone, seeking comfort from God's word on her Bible app between texts and calls from concerned loved ones. 
I was reading Psalm 91 over and over again, believing that my family was doing okay. She said, somehow I knew from the extent of what I was hearing that maybe no one was alive, but my brain didn't want to accept that, answering the call. Before moving to Afghanistan in 2003, Hannah Lee and her husband, Werner, had discussed the possibility of dying in the war-torn country. They considered the dangers of raising their two children, Jean-Pierre, then five, and Rhody, then three, in a region dominated by the Taliban, knowing their lives would be drastically different from those they had known in South Africa. Yet God's call was just as real as the dangers they would face, and they knew obedience to him mattered more than their fears. Werner and Hannah Lee led comfortable lives in South Africa. Werner served as senior pastor at a Dutch Reformed church, and Hannah Lee was a doctor in a trauma unit. While seeking to develop a more insightful prayer life for a particular country, Werner visited Pakistan, never intending to one day live and serve abroad. During the 2002 trip, however, he received a clear call to become hands and feet of Christ in neighboring Afghanistan, which had recently been identified as home to those who planned the September 11, 2001 attacks on the United States. After returning to South Africa and sharing his experience with Hannah Lee, he suggested they travel to Afghanistan for a short-term medical outreach with a short-term medical outreach team. Six months later, they visited Pakistan and Afghanistan for two weeks. In Peshawar, Pakistan, in a house church meeting on a Sunday morning, we had exactly the same experience, Hannah Lee recalled, of her first short-term outreach trip. We felt the touch of the Holy Spirit. It was the first time in my life I experienced this specific touch from the Lord in this way. I just started crying and knew that Afghanistan and Pakistan, wherever in the world the Lord calls you, can, can be your home. The couple spent the last week of their trip in Kabul serving at mobile medical clinics and working in a few nearby villages. Hannah Lee vividly recalls her first impression of the city. After 25 years of war, few buildings remained standing, roads were practically non-existent, and the entire infrastructure had crumbled. I remember that when I came back, I thought, this country is filthy and poor and ugly. There is really nothing beautiful in this country except for the desert and the mountains and the valleys, she said. Although aware of the dangers of life in Afghanistan, Hannah Lee says she and Werner trusted God and viewed their move as an adventure. The most difficult thing for me to decide at that stage was because of the children. You have a vision for them, and you want to help them to get a proper education, and I knew the source wasn't in Afghanistan. For me, it was a difficult choice to say yes to the Lord for their schooling. We knew there were going to be a lot of challenges along the way. In April 2003, they returned to Afghanistan to find a place to live, an aid organization to work with, and options for their children. Four months later, they left their friends and family in South Africa behind and moved to Afghanistan. My parents and our family thought we were totally crazy to live a country, leave a country like out South Africa to go to Afghanistan, Hanley recalled. It was their belief that the Lord wouldn't call a family with two small children to go and serve in this region. They really tried to keep us in South Africa. Still, the certainty of their call sustained them throughout the move. Their church supported their decision, and the grown walls saw God providing for them. The Lord was so faithful, Hanalee said, 
We raised the money that we needed within two months, everything that we needed to support us on the field. That was just confirmation from the Lord that he wanted us there. Hannah Lee was also developing a deeper relationship with God. My spiritual journey with the Lord actually started after our calling to get skip over this. Afghanistan, she said. Before going there, I was more securely, secularly oriented, a nominal Christian. I knew about the Lord Jesus. We always attended church on Sunday mornings. We lived our lives as Christians, but that was where it ended. Afghanistan was a culture shock for the grown walls. They found it difficult to connect with people and felt they were being constantly watched by suspicious Afghans. In all the challenges we faced, especially for me, trying to integrate my children in a place where there were no resources, I had to trust the Lord, Hanalee said. I didn't understand many things in my life. So many times we ask God, Lord, are we living in the right place? Is this really where you want us? Life was especially hard for their daughter, Rhody. Young girls in Afghanistan are largely homebound with little freedom to move around. Hanley, therefore, did her best to make life bearable for Rhody. She and her daughter did everything together from cooking to homework. Hanley saw Rhody developing into a gifted writer who seemed to enjoy anything art-related. Jean-Pierre, described by Hanley as a soft bear, a big boy with a soft heart, always wanted to be a pilot. He practiced with an online flight simulator and befriended pilots with other aid groups in Afghanistan, often joining them on domestic flights. He dreamed of one day studying aviation technology at Moody Bible Institute in Washington State. Werner remained diligent in the work he felt called to do in Afghanistan. Over the years, he served with various humanitarian organizations, providing leadership training, community development education, and English language courses. When Werner received his calling, the Lord showed him how his training as a reverend in the church could be precious in teaching Afghans about the ways of the Lord, Henley said, just for him to be sought in light, and that is what he tried to do. Even in the leadership training seminars he gave, we always tried to sow seeds of truth and the word to Afghan, into Afghans' lives. Fearless service to Christ became a, time, a theme for Warner, and sometimes he spoke that he sometimes spoke of often. In October 2014, Werner spoke at a conference on the subject of counting the cost for Christ. He ended it by saying, you only die once. It might as well be for Christ. While Werner thrived in his work, God showed Hannah Lee that she couldn't put her career first. Although she served with the Cure International Hospital of Kabul in a local medical clinic, she left behind a successful career in trauma medicine in South Africa. In Afghanistan, I learned to change my priorities, firstly to God, then my husband, then my children, and then myself, my ministry, and my career, she said. My main focus in Afghanistan was support my husband and to be God's hands and feet to the Afghan people and also shine my light and be salt. Life for the few thousand Christians in Afghanistan is very difficult. There are no church buildings, so it's nearly impossible for them to meet worship, and pray openly. Afghans who come to know Christ often keep their decision a secret and live in fear of their Muslim families finding out. By law, anyone who leaves Islam can be put to death. More mature believers, Hanley said, will share the gospel, but doing so is extremely dangerous. 
They have counted the cost, she said. Afghanistan is a dangerous country. We had to count the cost before going to Afghanistan with our small children. We knew that anything could happen, and Afghan believers there also know that anything can happen. They can be imprisoned, killed, or beheaded. You have to come to terms with that before you go to a country like that. Dying for Jesus. Jean-Pierre and Rody slept late the day of the attack. Jean-Pierre spent the day in his room listening to music, playing guitar, and chatting with friends on social media. He had planned to visit a friend at 3.30 p.m. about the time of the attack. Rody spent the morning crocheting, working on her computer, and playing video games. Werner arrived at his office at 8 a.m., Uh, to prepare for leadership training classes he was teaching at 10 a.m. and 3 p.m. He was teaching the afternoon class when Taliban fighters stormed the building. At about 3.30 p.m., a neighbor saw three men walking in front of the Grunewald house, one wearing a black police officer's uniform. One of the men then climbed onto the two other men's shoulders so he could jump over the wall. Once inside, he opened the gate to let the others in. The gate guard immediately confronted the men, but they shot him to death with a pistol. When Werner heard the gunshots, he ordered the 10 Afghan students in his class to take shelter in Hannah Lee's consulting room next door. After the others had left the conference room, Werner and the two Afghan men tried to escape up the stairs. Halfway up, however, they encountered the attackers at a side door that led to the back of the building, so they turned to run back downstairs. Lord, please help us, Werner said before being shot twice in the leg and once in the abdomen. He lost consciousness and bled to death within minutes. The bodies of Jean-Pierre, 17, Rody, 15, were found in the Gronwell's upstairs apartment and Jean-Pierre's room. Both had been shot to death with an AK-47. Two Afghan Christians survived the attack by hiding in the conference room, but one of the men suffered a flesh wound to the leg when the attackers fired blindly into the room with an AK-47. Six other Afghans had hidden in the consulting room. They tried to barricade the entrance, but one was killed as an attacker fired through the door. Some of the students who survived the attack said they heard a Taliban fighter say, we killed them all, meaning the grown walls. After one of the attackers detonated a bomb, killing himself, the surviving Afghans remained in place until police had killed the last two Taliban fighters about 7.30 p.m. Twenty minutes later, two co-workers tearfully broke the news to Henley that her family had been killed. She sat still, unable to comprehend the news. Sleep evaded me that night, she recalled. I felt totally overwhelmed and so terribly alone. I just couldn't cry. I wished so much that I could do something to help lift the heaviness, but nothing. Nearly two years after the attack, Hannah Lee will tell you, "It it is well with my soul. Although it hasn't been easy for her to find this peace, she knows God has been with her throughout everything. Her one regret, she said, isn't that she survived, but that she wasn't with her family when they died. I wanted to be there, especially with the children, just to embrace them and hold them and face the bullets. She said she's certain, however, that Christ was with them. Following the attack, she found evidence of God's work. The fire that burned their apartment stopped abruptly abruptly in front of Jean-Pierre's room, preventing it from burning her children's bodies. 
Hannah Lee also felt God's guidance as she worked through her grief and was able to forgive the attackers. In the months following the attack, Hannah Lee looked for opportunities to serve elsewhere in the world, but each time God closed the door. For now, she has decided to stay in South Africa, where she uses her medical background to care for the less privileged. She continues to share her testimony with anyone who will listen, speaking about six times a month in South Africa and elsewhere. Looking back on her family's years in Afghanistan, she says it was worth it. She would not change a thing. I don't think that we will ever know 100% what the impact is of what we made in Afghanistan through the years. I think that we will know that one day, though, when we are in front of the Lord. But I believe that we made an impact on people's lives. I believe also that my family's blood that was shed is like the seed for the Afghan church and that there will be thousandfold harvest in the end because I believe God has the last move. Annalise says she's proud of her family's obedience to Christ. She knows their sacrifice and service was for God's glory. It's easy for us as Christians to worship the Lord on Sundays in church and praise him, but it's difficult to have a heartfelt obedience to the Lord and go when he tells you. I believe there is a price tag attached to being a real born-again believer. Jesus Christ was persecuted himself. He was crucified, and we, his students, we are nothing better than he is or was. It will happen to us it will happen to us as well if you really live a lifestyle that is like that of a born-again believer following the Lord in obedience. There will be a price to pay. She said the prosperity gospel often taught in the West is not something she experienced in Afghanistan. For me, on the field, it was a life of sacrifice, difficulty, and struggles. And in that, the Lord gave us reward of his presence. She said he revealed himself to us, who he is. Hannah Lee says she is often asked if she was ever angry with God for the deaths of her family members, and her answer is never. We had a clear calling, she said. We had a mandate with this. We counted the cost. We knew that something like this could happen. God allowed that for a reason. I know that they are actually chasing me onto the finish line, finish the race as well. Uh, she, I know that they are actually chasing me on to finish the race as well, to finish well, she continued. I believe one day Jean-Pierre will say, Mom, what took you so long to get here? I believe they are where they are supposed to be on Jesus' lap, and I cannot wait to be there as well, but I have to finish the race for the Lord. Amen. Praise God. Amen. Amen. So it's tough, man, being a Christian, standing against opposition for real, you know. And uh, we need to honor those people and honor what they were doing by doing our best for God. You know, sometimes your best is is nothing more than getting up and going into prayer or worshiping God or believing God to open doors for you to help lost humanity at the supermarket or wherever you go. But let's be about the Father's business. Let's be servants and work for God. Amen. These people serve to the point of giving their lives, and we're no better. Amen. And we don't want to be better, but we want to be true servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, amen. Praise God. So, why don't you pray in the spirit? Amen. And I'll pray in the uh, understanding. We'll pray for the persecuted church and for the people who need prayer uh, this month. I think I got a newsletter with specific prayer requests on it. 
they usually include one in here. Let me just see if there's one in this booklet as well. But, Father, we thank you, Lord, that we submit to you and resist the devil and he must flee. We command you, Satan, to flee from us seven ways. Vengeance belongs to you, O God. I resist retaliation against our accusers. I am serving you. Why do the heathen imagine a rage and the people imagine a vain thing? You who sit in the heavens are laughing. Behold, they're threatening, Lord. Stretch forth your hand to heal, O God, and do signs and wonders in the name of Jesus. I declare that the way of the ungodly shall perish. Let them fall by their own counsels. Lord, the Lord shall judge the people. Judge me, O Lord, according to mine integrity that's in me. Let the mischief of they who persecute me return upon his own head. Keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me under the shadow of thy wings. Thank you for teaching my hands to war so that the bow of steel is broken in my arms. Thank you that you have given me the necks of my enemies. Shut the mouths of the lions that roar their lies against me and cause the tongue of the wicked persecutors to cleave to the roof of the mouth. Stop the pointing of the finger against your servants. Stop those who point the finger against me without a cause and who hate me. It is time for you to work, O Lord, for they have made void your law. Lord, we know that it is nothing with you to help. Help me, O Lord, my God, O save me according to your mercy. Let my hands prosper and prevail against our enemies. But the Lord is with me as a mighty terrible one, and therefore my persecutors shall stumble. They shall not, they shall not prevail. They shall be greatly ashamed, for they will not prosper. Their everlasting confusion shall never be forgotten. And we thank you, Father, that we know in your word that those who live godly will suffer persecution. Father, I thank you that as we stand on the word, we thank you that there is no easy way to stand on the word. That the word is a plumb line. It divides soul from spirit and it divides joint from marrow. I thank you, Father, that we know that it's nothing for you to help. We ask you, Lord, where we are sown seeds of the word to people, that that will be received and embraced and heard. It will not be fought forever, that that word will settle in them and that word will come to pass. Lord, where we have ministered salvation to our family and our friends and our loved ones, Father, we thank you that they will be saved. We thank you, Lord, that as we have invited the backslider to come back to you, that they will come back to you, Father. Where we have encouraged those who are trying to fall away to be diligent in their obedience to you, Father. We thank you that they will hear that word and they will obey you, Lord, according to your word. That we have confidence in your word. We have confidence in what we speak. We have confidence in what we share. We have confidence in what we tell them, Father. And we will not back down, Father, that there is no compromise in us, Lord. As people who know you and love you, we will not uh, fall down with the word, Father. We will not fall and we will not falter. But we will stand strong in you and in the power of your might, expecting that those who hear that word will conform to it. They will turn from their wicked ways. They will change in the hardness of their hearts. They will allow you to soften their hearts so that they can see you and, 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 and serve you and, and uh, submit to the gospel. So we thank you, Father, for raising up more and more and more believers in these persecuted nations. Father, that the church will increase in number, that the, the believers will increase in their boldness. They will increase in their confidence. 
They will increase in every way, and we thank you for that, Father, and we bless you and we praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen and praise God. Amen, 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 amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Well, that was a real eye-opener, huh? Yeah, it's, amen. It's tough out there. You know, uh, we we are consumed sometimes with things that don't really matter a whole lot to God, and he has to show us sometimes exactly what he's about. He's about getting the gospel to the people who really are lost. We have lost people in our midst, you know. Look at Just look on any street in any major city and see the people who are homeless on drugs and all kinds of situations that are not God's choosing for them. But who's going to be the voice of God to give those people hope and to give them life in Christ? Amen. So we want to say, here we are, Lord, send us. We will be that voice. We will share Christ and we will reach out to them in power and demonstration of the Holy Spirit and just not sitting around wishing we had more things from God, but really get into the spirit of where God is. So praise God. Amen. So as you go, remember that you have a mandate to set the captives free, introduce them to Christ who is alive and living. Amen. Wants to deliver them, save them, and heal them in every way. Thank you, Father. Praise God. So if anybody needs prayer, come on up and I'll pray for you before we adjourn. Praise God.